On the show today, I have Lisa McDonald. She's head of responsible investment at Aware Super, one of Australia's largest super funds, which means she and her team are not only responsible for the retirement savings of millions of Australians, they also have shareholdings in companies all over the world, which gives them an opportunity to engage and maybe even influence these companies to make positive change. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Aware Super is not only leading in being one of the largest super funds in Australia, it's also leading in terms of its approach to sustainability. They committed to net zero last year, they've divested from coal, and they're expanding their impact investment footprint. I spoke to Lisa about all these topics and more. She was generous in helping us understand her investment and analysis approach, as well as her philosophical view of using investment capital to drive change. We also dug into how Aware Super works with outside fund managers. We discussed the criteria they look for in terms of ESG and their plans to bring more of it in-house. And a small update on some of the numbers mentioned in the conversation when we discuss Aware's impact investment portfolio Their current status is 14 assets valued at $2.9 billion. I really enjoyed this one. I hope it offers insights to both the retail crowd who are looking for a super fund that's aligned with their values, as well as institutional investors who are keen to understand what Aware Super looks for in their ESG mandates. If you liked it, or even if you didn't, jump onto Apple Podcasts and let me know by writing a review. It's a great way to help more people find the show. And you can find all the links and show notes on my website at johntreadgold.com. All right, nothing left to do but jump in to my conversation with Lisa McDonald. Here we go. Lisa, welcome to the show. We've spoken in the past, but great to sit down for a deep dive today. Thanks for having me, John. Good stuff. Now, look, your head of responsible investment at Aware Super one of the biggest super funds in Australia, which means you're looking after the retirement funds of of more than a million Australians. But that also means you're naturally long-term investors. The world will be a very different place when your younger members tap into their super. So how do you plan for such long time horizons? And I imagine that's especially difficult in terms of environmental issues which are, are uncertain even today, let alone 50 years ahead. So, yeah, how do, how do you look so long ahead? Yeah, thanks, John. It's certainly complex. <laughs> but I think, you know, the context of Aware Super is $150 billion managing the retirement savings of all of our members who are all going through their life stages. So um, we're investing money for today for, for when members retire, but we're also then investing for the longer term. So our approach is long term. And so what that means is that when we think about responsible investment, it's integrating it into our investment decision-making process. So what we're doing today, we are hopefully setting up and looking at companies that are going to be long-term sustainable. And the way we approach that is doing due diligence, engaging with those companies. So some things may be more immediate now and they're going to impact the assets that we have. So as an owner, we can engage with those companies or we can have the conversation about how you're, I guess, looking to the long term as a company as well. So a lot of responsibility, 
but it really is, I think, that integration approach and thinking about the long term where some of the biggest themes come into play, like climate change, you know, that is long-term and we're thinking about how we integrate that and how we think about that as a long-term investor. So some issues, safety, immediate today, we need to be understanding the safety implications and how companies or how the assets we have in our portfolio are managing those safety issues in their day-to-day practices. That's right. I mean, that's a, that's a key risk factor, isn't it? There's a few keywords, maybe buzzwords in there, responsibility, sustainability. But then when it comes down to being more specific, we've got ESG integration, we've got impact investing. How does AWARE, I guess, define those those terms and, and how do you model that in terms of the actual uh, investments on the ground? Yeah, great question. I can throw in a few others if you like in terms of, I guess, screening, SRI, best in class, There's lots of different terminologies and I think that's sometimes where even our members and and consumers kind of get caught up. It's what do all of these different things mean? So for us at Aware Super, it is very much around integration of environmental, social and governance issues. So when we invest, we can invest in a number of different sectors, industries. So we'll be invested in transport, agriculture, but we'll be invested in that in Australia, overseas. So we've got sectors and geographies. What we're looking at is when we make those investments, what's a material environmental, social or governance issue that has the ability to potentially impact that company or that particular asset. And what we're trying to do is identify those so we can manage them and manage them through the life of our ownership, therefore ensuring we've got a sustainable business or a sustainable company that we're invested in delivering returns to our members. So that approach of really integrating and thinking about the risks and opportunities in the investment decisions that we make is how we think about responsible investment. The impact side is really interesting. Um, If you think about pure impact investing, and we've done a lot of work on this, you're investing for additionality and you need to be able to measure and report on that additionality. We absolutely believe as a fund that we can invest our members' money for the long term and for their retirement savings and delivering returns to them. But at the same time, we can have the positive impact on the environment and the community in which our members live, work and retire. What does that mean? As you say, lots of buzzwords and lots of, you know, statements in there. But if we think about our approach in property, we have made a particular strategy and it took us some time to get there to ensure the return element stacked up that we have been able to invest in affordable housing. And that's all been done domestically. So whether it's sort of in Sydney, Melbourne and some different regions. But what we can do is get key workers who work in the hospitals, who are teachers, living near where they work, so offering um, housing to them. We're also then getting a return from that investment that we're made. So it's kind of, it's a great example of how we're delivering returns in their retirement. We can also impact their day-to-day lives in terms of, you know, they may need to commute two hours to work. So some of the affordable housing initiatives that we've done are closer to the city so they can live in that sort of environment and it's, it's a lot easier for them. So that impact for us is really thinking about what can we invest in that's going to you know, do well for our members but also do good. So affordable housing, obviously, renewables. We've invested in renewables and that's really about supporting the transition to the low-carbon economy. We've done that in Australia as well as globally. So there's certain, I think, themes that have come through that we can focus on and look at the impact we can have by allocating capital 
to those certain themes across the different sectors. In our private equity portfolio, for example, there's a focus on health and education. You know, how can we invest in companies that are providing health services as well as online education services and reaching a lot more people than what they would have initially? And with some of those, though, and going back to that really important piece of, well, how do we measure our impact and how do we report on that? We've been reporting for two years in our annual report in measuring some of those environmental and social outcomes that we've achieved with some of the investments that we have. Okay. And digging a little bit deeper there, you started talking about ESG integration. That's obviously a really important factor to consider environmental social governance factors across the portfolio. And that's the risk on the portfolio. That's how you build a sustainable business. But I imagine that that stretches across the whole portfolio, all of your asset classes and that kind of thing. Now, when it comes to impact, do you see that as an overlay or is it a specific asset class? Because I would also imagine that that would make up a much smaller portion of your portfolios. How do those two things interrelate? Yeah, really great question. In the early early stages of thinking about impact and what it did look like for our fund, we did carve out a specific allocation for that. What we found, though, was we could actually get more scale and, and have a lot more opportunity by actually making it the responsibility of the different sectors. So our property portfolio, they are focused on when they're looking at the investments that they're making, they've got the strategy around how they can, I guess, have that positive impact with the investments that they're making. Our infrastructure team, same thing. So it's actually embedded into all of the sectors so that we're not limited in what we can do. It can sit in private equity and therefore it can be in any sector in terms of what we're investing in. So we've been able to sort of generate a lot more size and scale to be able to look at those opportunities by putting it a across all of the sectors versus having one specific carve out. And how does that affect your role? Does that mean that you have that top level view and you have to interact with all of the different sector experts? Yes, absolutely. So I guess that's the really exciting part is you get to look at, I guess, all different um, sectors, but as well, then you get to look at all different industries in terms of where the focus might be and, and what we're investing in. So I have a team, obviously, it's not just me, luckily, but there is that real kind of strategic approach across of what matters and what can we invest in that is going to deliver returns, but is also, I guess, driving some of those environmental and social outcomes that have a positive impact. And that's working, yep, with each of the different sector heads. What's your strategy? What can we focus on? What makes sense? Where do you see the returns sort of coming from? You know, there's been a lot, obviously, thinking about emerging markets or thinking about technology. You know, some of those really innovative, how can we sort of invest in that and deliver for our members? So it is absolutely across the whole of the fund. And so you do have some specific SRI investment options. So then your consideration of ESG, that's broader than just those SRI options, right? Is is ESG? Yes, absolutely. So for us, responsible investment is the higher term, and then that's considering ESG factors, and that's across the whole of the portfolio. We do have some exclusions across the whole of the portfolio, and that's based on a long-term stranded asset risk view or our engagement, which we think is a really important part of what we do, will not influence the outcome or change that product or service like tobacco. You can't change what tobacco does. And we've obviously got a huge membership in terms of the health sector. So we exclude controversial weapons, 
tobacco and thermal coal across the whole of the fund. They are the only exclusions that we have. Otherwise, it is absolutely all about doing due diligence, understanding the risks and opportunities, but also being owners and engaging with the companies that we invest in. That's great to understand those those holistic exclusions and that divestment from thermal coal came through last year. So interesting to clarify that that's broad-based. Then looking at those specific SRI options, what's the depth there? What's the added sort of layers of oversight? Absolutely. And it comes from initially a screening-based approach. So it is screening out certain sectors or industries that meet not societal norms and people do not want to, from a values perspective, have their money invested in those sectors and industries. So therefore, the exclusions in the SRI option are around fossil fuels, tobacco, pornography, gaming, weapons, live animal exports. So there's a lot more. And the philosophy or the premise comes from exclusion first. All of this is excluded. And then we're looking at the various other elements that are in that option for members. All right. We're going a little bit around, but I think I think my audience is sophisticated enough to understand the, the various terms and the different layers here. If we then roll back to the impact approach, which you talked about affordable housing and health, renewables, education, maybe we could start with how broad, perhaps in maybe percentage terms or, or dollar terms, you've managed to find opportunities that fit that specific impact term and how you manage it at scale. This is what we always hear about. The impact sector is desperate to tap into the billions held up in institutional investors. But then on that side, they say, well, look, we need big deal sizes uh, and we need, you know, long-term pieces and we need to be confident that the measurement and management systems are there. So how, yeah, how big is it and how are you managing it at scale? Yeah, really good question. So we started this journey two years ago in terms of doing our impact reporting and identifying the assets that we would report the impact on. So exact facts and figures are in our annual report, but I believe we have around 17 assets that we are measuring the impact on and reporting that. And I think it's around 1.6 billion. So it's a small portion of the portfolio, but we haven't sort of retrofitted what we've had in the portfolio to kind of go, this is contributing to impact. We took the view of, we want to be able to allocate capital for this specific purpose. Let's measure that. So we started that journey two years ago. We developed an impact measurement framework where we identify what we want to measure. We're capturing that data and we're reporting that annually to our members in terms of the impact that we are having. Starting small, Hopefully then, as we sort of build out each of the different strategies, whether it's around renewables, affordable housing, or other specific sort of, I guess, the impact investments, that will scale up and we'll be able to report on more assets. And obviously, that includes then more in terms of our um, funds under management as well. Okay, great to get that, that depth and understand that that is additional and it's not renaming existing assets. Now, I'd love to talk about net zero talked about divesting from coal, also made the commitment to achieve net zero by 2050. So what's next? What's the next milestone? And and what does it mean for a super fund to be net zero? Really good question. So we did make the commitment that we wanted to um, achieve net zero in our portfolio by 2050. With that, though, we have made some shorter term and medium term targets to get to that net zero position by 2050. So some of those initiatives, as you've said, was one was the divestment from coal, one was investing 
in the transition and the opportunities. So investing in battery storage, investing in renewables, investing in those versus in, in the, I guess, the positive element of it, and then looking at our existing investments in other energy sectors and what we may do in terms of setting targets on those. We've also committed to investing in green bonds. So we have a specific green bond allocation that we are targeting $150 million into that specific sector this year and the team's been working on on those opportunities and we've done around 90 million already which has been great it's challenging and it's certainly as we've worked through what does it mean and what does it look like it is about the transition and it is about the targets that we're setting so the biggest project that we've got at the moment when it comes to net zero is actually baselining the entire portfolio so what is the carbon emission profile or the emissions profile of our unlisted property assets, our infrastructure assets, our private equity assets. So equities, a number of companies already report those emissions. So we've got that data available to us, but what about the rest of the portfolio? So once we have that baseline emissions profile, what we're going to do is work through each sector, look at what targets we can set and how do we transition and, and I guess get to net zero by 2050, thinking about the different steps that we can take in those relevant portfolios. I know there's lots of, you know, everyone's set net zero, that's all great, but what are you actually doing? The way we've tried to approach it is it is about setting the shorter and medium term targets, holding ourselves account to that and being transparent and reporting how we're going against those targets year on year to our members. You mentioned there some of your own assets that you hold directly. But does net zero then mean for aware that all of your portfolios, all of the companies, all of the stocks you hold interest in, even if it's through a fund managed by someone else, all of those companies will meet the goal of 2050? Is that the view? Really great question. So we would have over 50,000 investments in our entire portfolio if you look at a line by line of everything that we might hold. The approach that we are taking is we outsource and appoint a number of external fund managers. So for those fund managers that we appoint, what are their commitments? What are they doing in terms of the investment decisions that they're making or the assets that they have? How are they setting targets? So if we have an infrastructure manager who's got a portfolio of a number of different infrastructure assets, what are they doing? And encouraging them to commit to net zero and to set targets in their portfolio. Encouraging companies that are listed to report against the TCFD, which is a framework that companies can report under on their strategy and targets for climate change. So encouraging all of our companies that we're invested in to report against that and to set targets and commitments. So at the moment, no, not every single asset in our portfolio has that, but working through with our managers, working with those direct assets that we do have, we can set targets there and we can commit to net zero in those. And then working and using our engagement with the listed companies that we have, it's about bringing everyone along the journey and on board. So for, I guess, the investment industry to set their targets means we can then have the conversations with the assets that we own and the companies that we hold to get them to set targets as well. That's right. You mentioned engagement there, a really important lever, and it's all about influence. And that, that's probably one of the pieces of, of these uh, conversations I have that I find so interesting is how investors have influence. I mean, you have $150 billion under management, so that brings a lot of power. And, and I think that the rise of ESG and, and the focus on environmental issues is really showing the power that big investors have and the fact that it is a future risk. How do you view that influence and what does it actually look like to 
engage with a company or a fund manager to try and convince them to make change? Absolutely. Engagement and also using our voting rights that we have as an owner of a listed company are hugely important to us. It's not so much influence, but you're right, it's an engagement with a company to understand how they're managing the risks and the opportunities. We're invested in them. We need to understand what their strategy is, what issues they're focused on, and how they're ensuring that they are managing them appropriately in terms of enhancing their long-term performance and therefore protecting our members' retirement savings. In terms of listed assets, we will hold anywhere from you know 0.003% of a company through to five or 7% of a company. So when you talk about what is the influence we have, the ownership rights that we have, and obviously the more that we own of a company, enables us to have a really robust conversation with the company if they're managing something poorly. You know, there's a number of different issues, whether it's climate change, conduct and culture, cultural heritage, diversity, safety, you know, executive remuneration. All of those issues are really important for companies to manage. So as an owner and as a shareholder, we focus and and absolutely use where we have a material interest or a material exposure to a company. We absolutely will meet with a company to understand what they're doing to manage those risks. So what does engagement look like? It's a lot of work in the background by my team in terms of thinking about what are the issues? What do we want to see? What do we want the company to do to improve? And I think that's a big element of it as well. We can go in and have a, you know, a conversation with them, but what's the objective? What's the outcome we're actually seeking from these companies? So we know that conduct and culture has been huge. We have an investment in clean away. So when there was an issue there with their CEO, we were asking them things around, you know, do you have this? Do you have this hotline? Do you you do this, what's available to your staff, what's available to be able to have these issues raised up within the company. And they didn't have, I guess, appropriate mechanisms for their staff to be able to report issues up. So they put in dedicated sort of whistleblower lines and different things. So hopefully then there's a little bit more information coming up to the board to know when they may have an issue and that they can do something about it. So that's a small example, but it really is about, it's about material issues in the company that will impact that company. And we want to understand what the, you know, the management is doing. And speaking to others in similar roles as yours, I've been assured that engagement has been going on for a long time and that institutional investors are always in a dialogue with their major holdings. But in the current environment, this term, these concepts are all coming to the fore. More and more investors want to wield their influence. And so I wonder how do you make sure, and I I guess this is more of a broader industry question, these are your companies, right? You're invested in them. You want them to do well. The last thing you want to do is be a burden. You want to be helping them. So What's the balance there, right? Yeah, look, I don't see us as a burden and I I don't think the companies see us as a burden. You know, nearly every week being approached by companies to talk to them about how they can improve and what do we want to see? What are our expectations from reporting? We can meet with 100 companies over the year. One from them coming to us going, oh, we're about to do our sustainability report. What are the key issues you want to see? What do you want us to focus on? We, I think, are value add to the companies that we're invested in. And it's interesting the point you brought up about, you know, we've been doing this for ages. I um, joined my current, um, I joined Aware Super 15 years ago. And when I joined, we had an active engagement and voting policy and did have that in place for some time. So the voting and engagement on particularly governance issues back then, 15 years ago, had been going on and has been going on sort of all of this time. The environmental and the social aspects have come in, I would say, since the introduction 
of the um, United Nations-backed principles of responsible investment that came and were developed in 2007, 2008, that kind of broadened governance and, and introduced environmental and social as material risks to companies that were invested in. So that sort of broadened out, not just talking about governance issues, but starting to talk about environmental and social issues. So, you know, that's 15 years of my career <laughs> that I've been focused on that at Aware Super. I like that approach that it is not a burden, a benefit to have you as investors and, and they appreciate that. I guess that adds adds another piece to your plate that you have to you have to manage the portfolios, but then you also have to answer the phone and, and help your portfolio companies. I wanted to pivot a little bit there and talk about a topic I've covered a lot. So we don't need to go into too much detail. I'm sure we could spend another hour going very wonky on ESG metrics and, and impact frameworks. But there's a million acronyms, TCFD, ISB, the EU taxonomy, lots of different bits and pieces. In some ways, there's too many frameworks we need to consolidate. But on the other hand, isn't it great that we're now measuring all of these factors that that before were getting missed? Is there any one construct or, or factor or framework or thing like entity you're really excited about coming down the train or element which has really changed everything for the better for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think all of us are hoping the ISSB, so the International Sustainability Standards Board that's currently being formed and is being formed for the purpose of creating international sustainability standards for companies to report against. If we can achieve that as an industry and have us reporting under it, as well as the companies we're invested reporting under it, I think that will be the solution. I don't think we'll lose some of the other frameworks. I I think there's a role to go more in depth on some issues for specific reporting. So, you know, the TCFD has been widely adopted and accepted as a great standard for climate reporting. And you're right, data is key, but it's also the right data. (laughs) You know, we can ask for lots of different data points, but our focus is still on what's material to a company. What do we want to see a specific company reporting on? And the more that it is standard or is set in standards, it is absolutely what we're after. So I'm clapping and hoping the ISSB can do their job. (laughs) In terms of where we're at now and where we've got to, we have all of these frameworks. We have net zero by 2050, still a long way off, but there are milestones happening every year. Based on your experience and, and your career, having been in this space for a long time now, what are the tangible benefits? Because I think we're, we're seeing a plenty of, of press articles that are frustrating in many ways, but we do have to, I guess, be held to account for some real change on the ground. And I think, I think corporate governance and respecting the environment and, and managing emissions are all happening. But do you have any key examples that give you hope that all of this is worth it and, and that it is actually making a difference? Thinking about our role, we are an investor. We are there investing our members' money right? We are stewards of their capital. So the focus that we need to have is delivering returns. But as one member has once said to me in a letter when we put out our climate strategy was, thank you very much for doing this. It's all very well and good that you can deliver me returns, but if there is no world for me to retire into, what's the point? So that sort of, you know, that broader focus on these issues, yes, it's impacting financial returns, but it's impacting our members more broadly as well. And there is absolutely a role for us 
to play in that, ensuring that we're delivering returns because that is our primary purpose. But I absolutely think us being more transparent, the companies we've invested in being more transparent, our members care about these issues. Our members want to know where their money is invested and why we've invested their money in that particular industry or in that particular company. There's a lot more engagement now from our members because, as you said, a number of all these issues are in the media. You know, they're on the front page of the news nearly every day, whether it's climate change or whether it is diversity. And so our members with that interest, we are then focused on ensuring that we're looking at those issues in the companies that we're invested in as well. You mentioned your members there and they're reaching out to you. I'd like to go a bit deeper there. What are they asking for? What do they want more of? And I mean, maybe the uh, maybe some of them are noisier than others. But yeah, what's the feedback you're getting? We get members inquiring on all different things. So whether it's about their returns, their unit prices, their insurance, this or that, the amount of, I guess, ESG related questions has over the years, you know, increased and has probably makes up nearly 50 to 60% of the queries that we get on a quarterly basis from our members. They are ESG focused. And the most prominent um, issue is climate change, you know, investing in fossil fuels. What's our approach? What are we doing? And given our membership, nurses... (laughs) you know, the health professionals as well as the teachers, there's a real focus on that. So that's been probably the biggest issue, you know, and then there's other issues that come up and it may be around live animal exports. It may be around some of those other issues. And we just respond to them and let them know what we're doing. You know, we have the SRI of options, obviously, that exclude fossil fuels, but there is then that broader approach in terms of how we're looking at net zero across the whole portfolio, but it's absolutely climate change is the biggest issue on our members' minds. Looking at the the fund management approach, like most funds, as as a split between funds managed in-house and those outsourced to other managers who build portfolios on your behalf, I think in the past you've mentioned it was was 80-20, 20% internal, 80% external. Is that where it's still at? And I'd really love to sort of understand how you manage that relationship and how you choose a fund manager in terms of ESG. What do you look for? Really good questions again. So I believe the split is still around that 80-20 in terms of 80% is externally outsourced and and 20% is managed internally. We have made the decision to internalise some asset classes and different aspects of asset classes. So we manage, say, cash and some bonds some equities as well. So our external managers are a huge and have a really important part to play as well. So when we are looking at appointing an an external fund manager, each of the portfolio managers across their sector are obviously looking for a certain style of a manager. So equities is, is, you know, they may be looking for a manager with a really deep sort of value focus, or they might be looking for a quantitative manager. So we think about the manager that's being appointed and the purpose and the role that they're going to play in the portfolio. But essentially what we're looking for is from an ESG perspective, you know, their policy, their resources, their stewardship, their integration approach, transparency and alignment. Under all of that, there's sort of, you know, specific issues that we're looking at um, to sort of, I guess, form a view on what we think their capabilities are in terms of integrating ESG into their decision-making process. 
Apart from that, we specifically delve a little bit deeper into how they think about climate change in their investment process. Have they committed to net zero by 2050? Are they reporting under the TCFD framework? Brings that alignment as well when we're looking at that. Modern slavery is also a huge part of our due diligence process and when we're looking at fund managers and what their approach is at an organisational level, but then also from an investment perspective. We've broadened it out a bit as well in that we're also looking at a fund manager's their corporate social responsibility program or actions, like have they got a strong stance at an organisational level on diversity beyond gender, equal pay, you know, any of those sorts of, I guess, the corporate responsibility issues that are driving their behaviour as an entity. So a a real holistic approach in terms of appointing them. We'll work with the portfolio managers in doing that due diligence assessment hand-in-hand with them. I will say, you know, there's always been this, oh, do you only appoint really good managers that, you know, score really highly? Our approach is, you know, we need every fund manager to be thinking about this. So if our portfolio managers have found a manager that they really like based on their style and what they're going to bring to the portfolio, but they may not be as advanced from a responsible investment perspective, we see that as our opportunity to work with them to actually improve what they're doing. And so we've got, you know, managers scoring differently across all of the different aspects that we look at. But the idea is that we're in a partnership and we're working with them and we're able to sort of either give them ideas and how they can improve. And we obviously use some of the leaders in the portfolio in terms of what they're doing, sort of using that experience to to bring some of the laggards up. All right. Well, thank you for all of these insights, Lisa. I I do need to let you go. This, This has been a great conversation. But before I do... I'd love to get a book recommendation, something about the industry, something about about responsible finance or or even just a, a fiction piece for the summer read. I have started a book that I was actually given over over Christmas um, and it's called The Kindness Revolution by Hugh McKay. So I'm just into it, but it certainly piqued my interest when I sort of read (laughs) that, you know, when you read the back cover or you read the sort of, you know, intro and it was kind of around how we can restore hope, rebuild trust and inspire optimism. And it came out um, only last year and it was on the back of the bushfires, covid going back to that human kindness and how we can keep some of that that we've seen through this, you know, extraordinary two years of just such devastation from the bushfires and the impacts of COVID. So it certainly inspired me to, to read on, to, to think about, you know, how, how we can continue to be kind and, and think about people. Very good. Great pick. I haven't read that one, but I'll add it to the list. Thank you. And thank you for coming here today. I think hopefully we've helped a whole range of listeners understand the aware approach there, whether it be people looking for a super fund or if it's the fund managers who are, who are keen to get involved and, and have you invest with them. Um, hopefully we, we've covered all of that. And yeah, let's stay in touch and keep up the good work. Thank you. And thanks for inviting me to come along. I love my job. I love working in this industry. And I think it's really important understanding the approaches because everyone does approach this differently, but really happy to be involved in in the podcast. Oh, good stuff. Thank you, Lisa. All the best. Thanks.